Welcome to the Gorsha Podcast. My name is Aidan Gorman, and today we will be talking with Professor Oliver Richmond about his work on peace and conflict. Professor Richmond is a leading scholar in the field of international relations, peace, and conflict studies. He's the founder of the Masters in Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Manchester and has authored numerous publications and reports. Professor Richmond has worked with international organizations such as the UN and civil society actors in conflict-affected areas around the world. He is a fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts and a recipient of the Eminent Scholar Award from the International Studies Association in 2019. Thanks for joining us, Professor Richmond. How are you doing today? Um, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Looking forward to um, talking to you about this area. Awesome. I'm looking forward to learning more, and I'm certain that our listeners are as well. So to start off, um, I'll start off really basic, sorry. Can you tell me a bit about what got you interested in peace and conflict? What does your work on the subject actually entail? Um, well, I originally um, was interested in a range of humanity, humanities areas. I mean, I came from classics and English literature originally. Um, and of course, the theme of, of war um, is, is very strong throughout the history of Western literature. And I guess that was a, an early influence, um, and particularly then reading a lot of of modern novels and modern history about what was done about war um, got me interested in studying further. So I then um, became involved in in um, a master's degree in international relations at the University of Kent, which had a very strong focus on the question or problem of peacemaking in international history and the building of the, the modern international order. That is really cool. So I know you didn't bring it up just now, but you've done field work in conflict-affected societies such as Timor-Leste, Sri Lanka, Cyprus, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Colombia. What, what's, your, what's your experience been of the peace processes in these societies? Was it hard to adjust from the English history studies to peace and conflict, by the way? Well, I, I had an international relations background by by that point, so I was fairly well versed in the tools that were developing and being applied by Western donors, the UN, um, the EU, and in civil society amongst social movements and civil society organisations. So I, I I more or less knew what the theory um, suggested, particularly in what was then. Um, uh, the kind of famous and dynamic paradigm of of liberal peace and liberal peacemaking and kind of 20th century um, attempt to to build an international system around peace rather than war. So uh, I have to say that my contacts in many conflict affected areas over the years um, have been um, impressive, but also somewhat shocking. Um, these very difficult situations um, that had emerged after a peace process had supposedly been put in place or a peacekeeping operation had been put in place um, suggested that things weren't moving smoothly and that the application of the theory wasn't really working as intended um, either. So I, I found it, you know, of course, very interesting and very dynamic, but it also indicated that the tools that we had developed mainly in the 20th century for dealing with global conflicts like World War One and World War Two, and then later on with post-colonial conflicts um, weren't really working out um, as 
it's said on the tin and um but also that the the most problematic deficit or gaps lay in how social actors civil society um um actors were kind of marginal to peace processes they were still very much predicated on this top-down quite eurocentric western driven notion of what peace may entail and early on there was a very limited understanding of peace a victor's peace or a ceasefire or a balance of power um, it was very elitist it was very focused on power sharing between political elites um, <clears throat> and later on as the debates developed um, we started to see more optimism about bringing in civil society about dealing with social issues social inequality um, ethnic conflicts um, and so on um, and m many things have been achieved and, and were being achieved but they were let's say limited slow rocky and overall the framework for peace building that had emerged by the 1990s was still very elitist very top-down um oriented and the, the the measuring frameworks for its success were rather basic based on the reduction of overall violence and fatalities um and and these sorts of things rather than on the improvements of people's um, living conditions, their wider human security issues being addressed and, and these sorts of things. So there was a big gap, I think, in, in the ways in which the theoretical frameworks were developing our understanding of peace and, and the practices that we saw um, more broadly um, around the world. And it's created a very complex picture, a very uneven picture, I think, in many of those um, societies. It also led me to understand that um, that many of these civil society actors of social movements, the local actors, you know, were forming networks and developing their understanding of peace too. And they were becoming rather critical of the work that Western-based peacemaking actors were doing. Interesting. Very interesting. So is there anything aside from the um, improvement of Western-based peace activism that we can learn from pe previous peace processes and post-conflict peace initiatives? Like, is there anything you think should well, be changed? <clears throat> I mean, I, I think two two big things stand out. The marginalization of civil society and social actors and the sorts of issues that they raise, which they would point to as conflict indicators, inequality, um, long-standing power relations and marginalization from the global political economy, um, not having a seat around the table um, at the at the highest levels in order to put their inputs in um, and, and those sorts of things. And secondly, <clears throat> I think the, the kind of veracity and longevity of 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 um, power powerful actors, their ability to de derail and manipulate peace processes both at the national level also within regional politics, geopolitics. And then the, um, relatedly, the, the short attention span of international actors, which meant it was very difficult for them to maintain the integrity of a peace process, to main, maintain the interests of their own, own home constituencies in supporting them, um, and to get things right. Um, and it's led to a kind of stalemate situation in many peace processes around the world, I think more recently, um, where we've seen a kind of re reversion to older practices of politics, kind of neo-medievalism, as perhaps Hedley Ball might have put it. 
Um, <clears throat> and everybody's sort of sitting on the stalemates. The civil society actors know they can't get more. They're being defunded or they're heavily weakened. They perhaps run out of ideas too because they don't have support to put things in place. Um, state elites and, and political and economic elites in conflict-affected societies are becoming bolder. And it's also leading to ideological contestation on, on the international stage where liberal peace building isn't the only game on in town um, anymore. And there are you know, serious ideological challenges within both within multilateralism and outside of multilateralism in terms of um, what type of political order a peace process and political reform in many conflict-affected societies, whether you're looking at the Middle East and North Africa or places like the Balkans or Timor, Cambodia, Colombia, you know, in, in these places, the question of what sort of political order peace processes should bring about has sort of been reopened. There's a post-colonial critique of liberalism, obviously, in many of these societies. There's a question of, of legitimizing a... Um, framework for peacemaking, which isn't delivering many of the things that civil society are, are calling for um, in, in those sorts of situations. There's disinterest um, and fragmentation and polarization within the West about whether they should be supported. All this points to, via this kind of convergence on the stalemate model, it points to... Um, the sort of restarting of a multipolar ideological struggle struggle in the international system. And I should say a basic premise of, of my work has always been um, that any viable political order, whether local, national or international, needs working peace tools that are effective. And at some point, if those tools are no longer working, um, then that political order itself is increasingly fragile and may collapse back into violence. You know, number one, the prescription of violence may, may collapse. The contestation between powerful actors may increase. Um, and there's a general fragmentation um, of narrative around what peace, peace may mean um, in, in those sorts of situations. And, and I think that is underway at the moment in this sort of trans transitional phase that we're seeing in many peace processes around the world. Okay, thank you. So you brought up peace tools. Could you give a specific example of certain peace tools that are needed in a country to stay stable? Well, you know, the, the, the liberal peace model of the 20th century, you know, particularly um, from the 1970s onwards, uh, after the end of the Cold War and so on, was that you would have some form of peacekeeping operation to provide basic security, stop the fighting. And then you would have mediation, diplomacy, You'd have institution building, you'd institute a rule of law. You'd have conflict resolution, sort of track two activities, engagement with civil society um, to, to rebuild the social contract um, between conflict-affected citizens and the reforming state. And all of that would be embedded within um, an international order that, that generally agreed on the same norms, basic human rights, liberal norms, international trade, democratization and um, the rule of law, all of which is pushing back at the use of political violence as a tool. So the utility of violence is supposed to be the first thing that's sort of controlled. And it's then replaced with the utility of, of institution building, of law, of diplomacy, of mediation, negotiation, 
um, all built on the kind of basic security guarantees that start from peacekeeping and then are kind of supported by regional and international actors. So this is an, an aligned notion of peacemaking where the international, the state and, and the local civil society actors are aligned in a common project. The reality has been misalignment um, in actual fact. And so we have, we have peace tools that are failing on all of those fronts. And that's, that has become a challenge to international order itself, as well as the norms it has been based on under Western and liberal and primarily American hegemony and, and, and guarantees. Okay, thank you very much. That was really informative and those were good examples. Moving to a new question, in a recent 2021 contribution to the Rethinking the Peace and Conflict series, you were quoted as saying, the current predicament of international peace building is one of increasing moribundity. What did you mean by that, and why would you say that's the case? So to, to answer that question, I'd have to sort of dig a bit into the deep history of, of peacemaking, and I obviously don't have time to do that, but I can give you a kind of short um, uh, headline which is, um, as far as I can understand it, the, the recent history of, of peacemaking, particularly the Enlightenment, westernized history of, of peacemaking, has seen the, the development of tools and systems to, to bring and maintain peace after war in a kind of reactive crisis-driven framework. And every major crisis leads to new tools but these tools of peacemaking that emerge out of these you know, major conflicts, systemic conflicts like World War One and World War Two, and many civil wars and many post-colonial conflicts and many post-Soviet, post-socialist conflicts. And then you know, later on, I suppose we have to add the war on terror and um, the sort of uh, the, the, the fragility of the international order itself more recently. These, these are systems, these are moments where systems are developed to deal with past problems. So peacemaking and its tools have always been reactive. And we've built up layers over these stages in the development of war and political problems of peacemaking tools, but they're all reactive. They're all backwards looking, fighting the last conflict. So every tool is in its very nature moribund almost by the time it's invented, or at least by the time that it's consolidated as an international practice or a domestic product practice. And I think, um, you know, at some point it's pretty clear that if, if these tools are only really providing short-term fixes and the conflicts themselves aren't being addressed, dealt with substantially, and we're not developing forward-looking tools in advance of the next wave of conflict, um, then we're looking at a kind of League of Nations type situation, aren't we? Where the institutional order which exercises these tools itself faces an existential threat. And I think we certainly face that in the 1930s. And at various points um, after World War II, there were moments where this looked like it was, we were into a kind of moribund phase two. And we're certainly in one of those now. I mean, any transitional moment in international politics would need the reassessment of those tools. What I've been suggesting recently, and that's where that quote that you mentioned comes from, is that we're, we're now in a situation where we have a much more developed and much deeper knowledge of peacemaking and its relationship with war. 
and the kinds of opportunities that are available to us in terms of enormous data sets, a wide range of, of tools, and, and a massive international community of actors who are interested in peacemaking. And in those conditions, we should be able to start making forward-looking tools for peacemaking and building them in, into the international system in ways which um, are much more closely connected with the scholarship that has been suggesting this is necessary and these are sorts of things that we, we could be doing. And I think if you look at the UN's sustaining peace agenda of recent years, you can start to see that's happening much more significantly. What has been a very wide gap between scholarship on peacemaking, particularly critical scholarship, and the dynamics and practices of peacemaking in a war-torn international system, that's always been very wide, that gap, and it's, it has been narrowing over time. The trouble is, as it's narrowed, it's become far more complex to implement, and complexity may well undermine its integrity as well, um, because you know these are political tools that require consent. And, and legitimacy and authorization and funding and political will. So that starts to push peacemaking, peacemaking again away from scholarship and into the terrain of political ideology, which is what I think we're seeing at the moment. So you know, in this transitional situation, for example, um, <clears throat> there are no real tools for dealing with peacemaking in a multipolar international order. You know, what happens? How is peace kept in the other poles? outside of the West, and also how is peace kept between the Poles, between the West and the Chinese, the Russians, the Indians, and, and, and however you want to disaggregate the contemporary international order. Now, I don't think there's enough thinking um, going on, and we only have very primitive tools for dealing with that kind of thing, you know, really basic diplomacy, conferencing, um, and, and balance of power, you know, the reorganization of political forces, and, and these sorts of things. They're, 19th century tools. So I think we've done very badly there in terms of building an international peace architecture, which is, is forward-looking and is able to, to develop quickly enough um, to, to deal with the constantly changing character of war and political violence in, in modern and international history. Thank you very much. In another paper you wrote, you write about a potential source for the moribundity, what you call the counter-peace movement. Now, you just spoke of the war on terror and the post-Soviet period. Have you ever encountered this counter-peace movement in any of the areas you've come across? Yeah, so, so the counter-peace is a concept that I developed with um, some other colleagues, um, Gazim Bazoka at Dublin City University and Sandra Pagoda here at, at Manchester University. And its basic premise is is to draw on the kind of Hegelian dialectic between revolution and counter-revolution and to apply it to, to peacemaking. And what we've come up with is the idea that the opposition to peacemaking, which in the past has often been called, termed spoilers, you know, um, <clears throat> or it's been seen as structural or systemic and, and too deeply embedded to, to deal with. But what we've come up with is the idea that actually as a peace process develops, it begins to reduce the, um, the, the room for political maneuver of actors and, and ideologies that are invested in war, that see the political utility of violence for, for a wide range of, of reasons. 
and they may well then sort of amount to counterattack. And I think very cleverly, you can start to see this opposition emerging in small tactics, which push back a peacekeeping or mediation, leading to what, what I've just mentioned earlier, the, the kind of stalemate outcome of many peace processes and holding it in a stalemate. So that's counterpeace. But to extend that a little bit further, we can say that counterpeace can go systematic and eventually systemic. So what happens is where you have a peacekeeping force holding a ceasefire upon which you can build a peace process, you could end up with counter peacekeeping tactics, which push back at peacekeeping and the premise that it's a, a basis for a wider peace settlement. And within, a, within the mediation process or the negotiation process too, you can see these sorts of dynamics um, emerging. And I think the, the longer range point of this is that these counter-peace processes, which may well involve political elites that are invested in the war or haven't given up on their pre-negotiation objectives or social actors that are connected to those political elites or geopolitical forces outside of a conflict-affected society that do not accept the sort of political order, particularly the liberal political order, that modern peace processes supposed to, uh, are supposed to be constituting. So, so what they're doing is they're parasitic and they're living within the peace process, pushing it back, forcing it into a stalemate in which um, non-implementation becomes the kind of dominant um, outcome. And um, they're just waiting, they're abiding their time for a moment when they can overturn that process. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the opposition to liberal peace building is invested in war or in political violence, but it does mean that there are strong ideological differences. And of course, we know from our, our history that these differences are difficult to manage. So we suggest that once you get into this situation where a peace process is stalemated, that stalemate will tend to escalate. And that escalation will tend to mean that the peace process will um, uh, collapse or it'll become an empty vessel. So you think about the situation in Ukraine now with the Minsk agreements back in 2014 as, as an example of how this may work. And of course, we know that you know peacemaking in its modern guise was often predicated on the idea that small conflicts, civil conflicts, ethnic conflicts, boundary conflicts, resource conflicts, ethno-linguistic conflicts, these sorts of things, um, could easily spread and escalate. And, and during the Cold War, that was bad news because it could lead to nuclear war. Um, and, and in the post-Cold War period, it was bad news because it could infect a region, it could spread across a region and, and destabilize the, the political economy and, and civil society and, and go further. So, so what then happens if that becomes a political tool? You know, escalation in itself within a peace process becomes a tool, particularly if it then becomes connected to a new ideological framework, like um, a sort of a, a greater Serbia or, or a greater Russia or, or whatever it might be. So the, the, the idea is then that it provides, the stalemate provides a platform for oppositional ideological forces to gather and to begin, begin to try to legitimate new political narratives, like, for example, as has occurred in many peace processes, the salience of authoritarian nationalism as a settlement approach, as an objective for a peace process, 
or as the objective of politics, as opposed to the salience of democracy, human rights, free trade, and the rule of law, which is what the liberals would say on the other side of the equation. So does this peace building and the role of civic society have any sort of future improvements at all, or would you say it's looking fairly bleak as of right now? I mean, I think we face some fundamental problems. I mean, the first one is, as I've mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to envision peace, peacemaking in an international system in which its core levels of analysis, society and civil society, the state and elites and the different regional poles or actors um, cannot come to an agreement, a common agreement on the nature of peace, which means determining the nature of political, political order in the 21st century. I've got one, one small thing to add to that. Um, and I think what's important about this in particular is the consideration that implies we must give to civil society um, actors and to, to social movements. Now, what we've seen, I think, historically is that Western scholars and um, civil society actors and social movements have often been the key actors um, and the key areas in which innovations in peacemaking have emerged. So that's a long-range historical perspective. Um, there was um, a, a famous Cambridge scholar called F.H. Hinsley, and he said um, of <clears throat> attempts to build a kind of a peace order in the 20th century, he said that the ideas were developed 300 years before, and they came from scholarship and philosophers and um, <clears throat> comments, you know, social commentators and civil society, social movements and these sorts of things. Um, and it took 300 years for um, policymakers to try to implement them. And they did this out of desperation because everything else they tried had failed and they were now facing existential risks. So I think that, you know, civil society, scholarship, transnational networks, social movements are, are perhaps the places where most innovation has arisen in peacemaking. And then it's been at the international level or at the state level where political elites have, have brought them into play in implementable form. But there's been um, an enormous gap, time gap in this adoption. And it normally happens after a major systemic crisis, um, which has discredited all other attempts to maintain a viable international order and has led them in some desperation to, to invest in in this confluence of, of you know, social knowledge about peace. And that was a point of a lot of the work I did on, on, on local peacemaking and post-liberal peace building and hybridity and, and these sorts of things. Now, I think we've closed that gap now. And, and until recently, um, we were, there was much more communication going between these different levels of analysis about how peacemaking could be developed. But that now has widened again. Um, particularly with the, the war in Ukraine, um, from the war on terror through the war on Syria to Ukraine, um, the gap has got wider and wider. And it has sort of resulted in, in quite a difficult situation where, you know, civil society and social movements um, may have either become disinterested in peacemaking, their attention has gone elsewhere. I mean, you look at the energy that, that goes into campaigning on environmental questions, the dynamism particularly of youth movements on the environmental question and compare it to the peace movement. And you can see that we have a significant problem. 
Okay, interesting. The civic society and social movements are the innovators, as you said. Now, if that's true, how can they more effectively involve themselves in policy? Because the government and political elites, especially in authoritarian countries, are the ones who decide what happens. Are there any ways that civic society can improve upon yeah. that or get around that? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and, and one that um, you know critical thinkers um, ha have been working on for for generations. Um, I think, and you know, we can see sort of shimmering into view that the ideas and also the practice of a transnational and transversal um, global community acting as a kind of check and balance and also an innovator focused on um, the res residual power of the authoritarian state in many conflict-affected societies, as well as on shaping international opinion and on influencing international policy doctrines, say in the UN, the General Assembly, and the specialised agencies and, and so on, in the World Bank, you know, it has been effective to a degree. But the problem is that, of course, by the time these things percolate up, into the international system itself they are kind of preempted by blockages that are built into the state and to the international system sovereignty territorialism nationalism boundaries um inequality um, and these sorts of things they're all drivers of conflict as well as having been in the past solutions to to conflict as well so we're sort of facing a paradoxical moment i think conceptually where you know civil society um, has the potential to innovate, but doesn't have the pathways to do it. Now, in this transversal, transnational, sort of non-formal international that has had a lot of energy and, and dynamism in certain areas over the last 30 or 40 years, there is the possibility to see this happening again. Innovation percolating up, you know, saying to elites, at the state level, at the international level, here's this knowledge, here are these practices. These are things that we can try because the alternative is an existential conflict um, effectively for all of us. Um, but surely we could get beyond that kind of situation because this really is sort of peacemaking as a last resort um, for um, state and international actors. I mean, they're only really being kind of persuaded to do it when it's absolutely necessary for their own survival that the the gap between the scholarship that's being produced and the empirical knowledge that's being produced is still incredibly wide. So that's a problem to be addressed, I think, for the here and now um, and, and in the future. You can see a lot of progress over time, um, but also you can see a lot of obstacles. You know, part of the counterpiece concept is to try and make an assessment of the sorts of blockages to peacemaking that we can we can see have emerged in many cases around the world which, as I've said before, converged on this sort of stalemate model. And the point of understanding the patterns of blockages that hold peacemaking back is to allow us to innovate again. And I think that's where we, we're standing on a precipice and we need some innovation pretty quickly. Scholars have been pointing to you know, new technologies and mobility and digital tech and, and datafication. These are all sort of possibilities, but they also have their dark side um as well and i think it's sort of important to it's important to have some kind of grounding for for peacemaking um within all of this this debate and that's where 
we're in a bit of a tricky situation because many civil societies and social movements around the world are actually now pointing not to local features of violence, but to, to global and systemic features of violence, that the, the structural, cultural, environmental elements of the state system and the international system, which they would argue need to be addressed if there is to be a local peace in, in say, Sri Lanka or in, in Cambodia um, or in Colombia. And we're not addressing those things. Okay, interesting. So you also just mentioned digital and technology, you know, innovation overall. So you've heavily analyzed the six layers of international peace architecture. Can you describe the latest layer or what you have called digital international relations? And what are the implications of that? Well, I've been suggesting that this is a possible layer. And I think a lot of international actors um, have a rather naive perspective on this. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that this is kind of, we're, we're at an immature stage in this debate in terms of understanding the pros and cons of how we move peacemaking out of the geopolitical and analog terrain and make use of new possibilities that um, might emerge from this technological era that we live in. And one of the lessons of the international peace architecture that I drew from the work that I've done on it um, was that the kind of global political technological architecture um, you know, throws up opportunities for conflict and violence and, and, and they need to be dealt with through commensurate peacemaking tools. So the institutional ar architecture and the legal architecture of, of, of the 20th century was very much an analogue set of tools. Now we're in a situation <clears throat> where knowledge is global, um, you know, whether it's empirically based or kind of post-truth narratives, um, and I think people are able to assess their positionality around the world in terms of, of peace, war and development, um, access, mobility, um, and they can do this in, in an intergenerational way looking forwards. So a sort of immature perspective of these digital, pos digital possibilities is that we can use all kinds of technologies that we now have that we didn't have in the 1950s, let's say, um, to help bring peace, to monitor, to, to know the local context better, um, to um, see where the flashpoints are, to, to deliver assistance, to disseminate knowledge, to make sure that mediation processes and peacekeeping operations, um, diplomacy um, and, and development is well targeted um, and, and so on and so forth. But, but actually what we're seeing is a kind of bifurcation of these technologies where <clears throat> the other side, the counterpiece dynamics, if you like, um, are also very familiar with the opportunities that this new era brings. And because there are different priorities in, in that worldview and in that kind of political ideological framework, you know, whether it's the nation state or some new form of regional influence or, or empire or um, some sort of totalitarian control of the population, you know, these, these technologies also work for that pretty well too. So the sort of early hope that the ability of civil society, the, the civil society scholarship social movement nexus could, <laughs> could um, use these new, these new potentials to, to develop better forms of peacemaking, I think is somewhat dissipated because 
in actual fact, what they're now doing, it seems to me, is that they're rarefying the old morbidities of the state and global economic system. Okay, so instead of rarefying the old morbidities, how can organizations, for example, Gorshta Research Group, other civic society groups, individual future leaders, um, better better engage with the issue of peace and peace building with technology, would you say? Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, I think that sort of thing is underway. I mean, the networks that you and, and others can build with each other, civil societies across the world, <laughs> which can trans, transgress sovereignty and territorialism. They can transgress inequality too, um, allows um, a, a sort of fluidity and a debate on a much larger scale. So one would expect that would, that would hold up and, and shine a light of truth against power. Uh, and that hasn't been happening to um, a large degree because it's very difficult to, to regulate the multiple narratives that are emerging in, in this terrain. So, you know, going back through political history, one, one strategy was always to make alliances with other organizations that had developed successful tools or had gained some traction or public exposure and, and were, were similarly kind of thinking in emancipatory frameworks about a better political order, a better future, and, and these sorts of things. So, you know, connecting with the, the environmental movement, movements would be one way forward for the peace movement, um, possibly. I think very important to, to think about the, I mean, civil society is a very broad brush concept, concepts, and I'm kind of using it as if it were one thing. Um, and, it, and it's you know good and bad and all that kind of stuff, but but um, <clears throat> you know from what I've observed, civil society has had a lot of incentives to get very close to international donors and and to their own states, and that has led to a degree of cooptation which has pulled them away from other social movements in the peace area, and the kind of professionalisation of of civil society actors doing peace building, for example, you know has led them to becoming quasi diplomats and quasi politicians and quasi bureaucrats in in the international donor system and in, in the UN system are kind of very closely clinging on to the fringes of those systems. And I think that's so in a way they've become subcontractors to the liberal international order. And that has sort of undermined their um their, their credibility because now they're involved in this sort of trick trickle down of global norms and telling people to be resilient um and sort of uh, um bureaucratic efficiency savings in the workings of the um, the peace building framework. And, and I think that hasn't helped, actually. So the, as I said before, the gap between the kind of scholarship that's been produced and the work of peace builders um, across the range from local to, to international is variable. But many civil society actors are also caught up in this growing gap now yeah honestly i completely agree that is a great answer to a difficult question at the start and the end the ability to transgress national lines as you said to speak with people from all around the world about these issues needs to be used but it's not being used that was my uh, that was my last question so i would like to thank you for taking the time to come and speak with me oliver i know all of our listeners appreciate it as well i hope you have a good rest of your day and again thank you for coming thank you my pleasure good luck with your work